Well, I remember the, the first class I ever took in college. Um, it's called Freshman Preceptorial 101. It was required. I went to Knox College, a small liberal arts, non-Christian, very secular uh, place. Um, this, this class was required of all incoming students. In fact, if you transferred in as a junior, you still needed to take Freshman Preceptorial 101. It was uh, taught by professors of all disciplines. Since everyone's got to take it, they needed professors. That didn't matter whether you're a math professor or a chemistry professor or an art professor, a music professor, sociology, whatever you were, you were teaching um, these classes. I remember when I was a freshman, first uh, year I had it from a chemistry professor, this class. There was a giant lecture every Tuesday. About 200 students uh, would be in that lecture hall. And then discussion sections every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And what we did was we, we basically read literature and, and talked about it. Um, some of the literature that we read were just all the philosophers of, of, of time gone past. Uh, we, we read um, guys like ancient philosophers, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates. We read the existentialists like Jean-Paul Sartre and Kierkegaard. We read the psychologists like Sigmund Freud and the feminists like Margaret Mead. We read Darwin and Marx and Friedman. And we even read the Bible is what we did. We, did, we just kind of looked, looked at life and everyone's, everyone's take on life. And uh, the results of this class were, were pretty interesting. First of all, since everyone took it, in whatever class you were in, in the college, you could always refer back to Freshman Preceptorial. Remember that book we read? Remember this? It was all just a common knowledge at school. It was pretty interesting and pretty neat. But the first semester we took, the class was called On Being Human. And uh, it sought to ask the question, what, it me- what does it mean to be a, a human being? And uh, we had summer reading. Uh, for that. This is the reading I did when I was an 18-year-old before going off to college. It's called The Death of Ivan Illich. And so we all had to read this before coming in. And there was like an opening welcome lecture and was talked about. Now, this is written by Leo Tolstoy. And uh, the crux of this book comes at the beginning of chapter 2 when uh, Leo Tolstoy just simply writes this, Ivan Illich's life had been most simple and most ordinary and therefore most terrible. And basically it tells the story of the death of Ivan Illich. Ivan Illich was a man who just kind of rose up and kind of lived like he was supposed to live and did the things he was supposed to do, a rise in society structure, climb the corporate ladder, um, go to work more than he did at home, face the problems then he'd have at home, become self-absorbed. And, and his life was terrible because he was so self-absorbed he never questioned why he was uh, living the way he was living. Now, at Knox College, they challenge us, really, think about the way you're living. How is it that you are going to live? Live an intentional life. Don't just live a life that everyone else lives. It's great, great advice. We don't want to just live like everyone else lives. We want to have an intentional life of how to live. Well, on the one hand, it's very good because people were examined, caused to examine what they believe, what will they live for. But on the other hand, it was pretty devastating for many of the freshmen who came in, just nominal churchgoers. All of a sudden, they get exposed to things like Freud and Marx and left their faith easily and quickly based upon even what was being taught. They said, oh, I like Sigmund Freud. I'm going to pursue that. You know, I think about him. For college students, they loved Sigmund Freud. In fact, one guy who TA'd our class said, I think he's got it right. Just be able to pursue your passions and your desires. Well, it was interesting. When we got to where the Bible was, to kind of give a perspective of the Bible, uh, the story that was looked at, and, and the Bible was given as, as reading assignments, uh, the Bible, the, 
the story that was given was this of Abraham offering up Isaac and his son of Mount Moriah. And I believe we looked at this story because it so epitomized the, the essence of faith. Now, here was Abraham. He didn't understand everything, but he still found God trustworthy and still followed Him. And, and my hope and aim is that that's where we all live, is finding Jesus to be trustworthy and worthy of following, that we would gladly do that. Because a life of faith will continue to obey just like Abraham. Well, if you haven't done so, I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. We've come to the story, but we've been going through chapter 11 that talks about all these people who've lived by faith. We come, we've seen Abel and Enoch and Noah. We've seen, uh, the last couple of weeks, we've been focusing on Abraham and the patriarchs. Abraham, Sarah, also Isaac, Jacob, and we'll see even this week Joseph uh, a little bit uh, as well. But we've been going through and just seeing these people and, and seeing really their faith. The point of application is, is this, it's been this in all the, uh, the people here in Hebrews chapter 11, is examine your life and see whether your faith is like their faith. And so this morning we can think about Abraham. Do we have the faith of Abraham? Do we live like Abraham lived? Now, you're not going to be asked to offer your son. But God may ask you different things. And it's going to say, what was it that God asks of me? Will I follow in the ways of Abraham? Even if I don't understand it all, will I follow in those ways? It's really the point of application that we will we'll get at today. But let me just read our text, verse 17 through 22. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which He also received Him back as a type. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Now, you look at this text and it really splits right down the middle. The first three verses talk about Abraham and his faith and the ways that that demonstrated itself when called to sacrifice his son. The last three verses, 20, 21, and 22, address the faith of Isaac, verse 20, Jacob, verse 21, and then Joseph, verse 22, and how they gave their blessings to the next generation and thought of the future of them. As I thought really about, how, how do you synthesize these? How, how do you, what, what's similar about Abraham's faith and the faith of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph? And, and uh, what I want to do is use a phrase that John Piper wrote. He, he has this book here. It's entitled, Future Grace. It's really John Piper's book on faith. When he decided to write a book on faith, he, he um, called it here, Future Grace. Because that's really the essence of what what faith is. That's what we hope for, if you think about it. That's what we, we wait for. We're waiting for God to provide everything we need in the future to accomplish whatever's needed. And that's, that's His main premise of the book. And in fact, it even says, the purifying power of living by faith in future grace. And He just takes a lot of Scriptures and just speaks about how it's all in the future. It's in the, it's in the future. You're looking, you're looking forward is what your faith is doing. Piper says this, at the heart of the book is the conviction, and I'll just read it from here, is the conviction that the promises of future grace are the keys to Christ-like Christian living. It's 
the promise of something in the future, the promise of God's grace to come in the future, that's what enables us to live Christ-like. The hand that turns the key is faith. And the life that results is called living by faith in future grace. By future, I don't mean merely the grace of heaven in the age to come. I mean the grace that begins now, this very second, and sustains your life to the end of this paragraph. By grace, I do not mean merely the the pardon of God in passing over your sins, but also the power and beauty of God to keep you from sinning. By faith, I do not merely mean the confidence that Jesus died for your sins, but also the confidence that God also will give Him, with Him will freely give us all things. Faith is primarily a future-oriented assurance of things hoped for. Trust that you recognize that phrase, Hebrews 11.1. It is the deep satisfaction with all that God promises to be for us in Jesus Christ, beginning now. And uh, I think that's the tie all these men together. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, they all had this future-looking faith. Looking for faith and future grace. In fact, that's the title of my message Faith in future grace. We're going to see these men and look to the future for God to provide whatever the circumstances, whatever the need. So let's look at look at Abraham. We're going to see him, point number one, passing the test. Passing the test of looking for future grace. Verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he would receive the promises, was offering up his only begotten son, now, this verse bothers some people because some people know James 1, verse 13. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And here, yet, we see Abraham, God tempting Abraham, if you will. The same Greek word, peirazo. It's both in Hebrews 11, 17 and James 1, 13. It means to tempt, to try, or to test. Now, some say, well, there's a contradiction in the Bible. Right? On the other side, one hand, God can't be tempted, and yet on the other hand, here we see God tempting someone. How, how is it that that works itself out? And I, I think that the key to that is translating peirazo within the sphere of, of its word meaning. It doesn't mean always just to tempt by evil things, though it does. It can also mean to test, to try, to prove by righteous means. Even Albert Barnes said it very well. In fact, that's how every translation translates it. You wouldn't even know that was a problem unless I mentioned it to you because it says here, verse 17, Abraham, when he was tested, that's what God was doing. He was testing him. He's putting something good before him. Albert Barnes said, Peirazzo does not mean here, as it often does, to place inducements before one to lead him to do wrong, but to subject his faith to a trial in order to test its genuineness and strength. The meaning here is that Abraham was placed in circumstances which showed what was real strength of his confidence in God. In other words, God, in orchestrating these circumstances and telling him to sacrifice his son, allowed Abraham to see, to test his faith, to show that it's a genuine faith. Not testing him to sin in a, a wrong way. But anyway, we look at verse 17 and that contradiction might come to mind, first of all. But second, right, we're, we're shocked. Something that comes to mind. Abraham called to offer up Isaac. His son, his only son, the son of the promise. In fact, that's the key in verse 18. It was he to him who said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. Abraham knew full well it was Isaac. His descendants will be called. And yet, God tells him to sacrifice Isaac. Well, the story is told in full in the text that Phil read for us this morning. I want us to go there. We'll, we'll spend most of our time here this morning in Genesis chapter 22. 
It's one of the most famous passages in, in all the Bible. It's a passage Jews look to this. Even Muslims look to this passage, although they wrongly say that it's Ishmael rather than Isaac. And of course, we Christians look to this passage as well as a model of faith for us to follow. It epitomizes trust in God and believing in Him at all costs. We begin in verse 1, which pulls us back to the context. Now, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. So you say, okay, what are these things? Well, the previous chapter was Isaac's birth. The son given to Abraham and to Sarah in their old age. The one they named Laughter. They named Isaac because of the joy he brought not only the parents, but also everyone who would come across. Here's my son, Laughter. Oh, that's a funny name. That's a nice name. He makes me laugh. And he'd tell the story about it. Yes, God gave this child to us when Sarah was 90 and Abraham was 100. And God promised that in verse 11 of chapter 21, that's through Isaac your descendants shall be called. That was quoted in Hebrews 11, verse 18. And all was looking up for Abraham. Genesis 21 is all, all good things. And then comes that fateful day when the Lord approached Abraham and said to him, Abraham. Abraham said, here I am. It's typical, you'll see that several times here in this text. And then God said to him, verse 2, Take now your son. Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, and yet here he's called your only son. It's because from God's standpoint, from Abraham's standpoint, this really was his only son. This is the son of the promise, right? The son whom you love, something that is Isaac, and then identified by name. God could have just said Isaac. Now take Isaac. But he piles on all these superlatives for a reason. He says, and then go to the land of Moriah and offer him, that is your son, there is a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I tell you. Upon hearing that, shock must have rippled through his body. Questions are filling his mind. God, you know, here's the son I love. Here's the son of the promise. And yet you tell me to sacrifice him? How can that be? You tell me to kill him and to burn his body? What about the promises? How can I destroy the one I love, God? These things probably started stirring in his mind. And without doubt, God knew of Abraham's love for Isaac. I mean, you can see in verse 2, they're about overflowing. I mean, this is your son. I mean, Ishmael was like way off the scene. This is your son. Isaac is your son. He is your only son. He's the only one you got. He's the one whom you love. Every son is loved by their father, by his father. But when there's only one son, I do believe love is heightened. Because there's a preciousness there and a tenderness there. Now, now we don't know how old Isaac was when he left here, but he's identified in verse 5 as a lad. And the heir, which can mean anyone from an infant to an older teenager. So we don't know exactly what, what that is. In fact, it was used to describe uh, Ishmael when he was at least 13 years old in Genesis 21 verse 12. So we don't know, but we do know that it, Isaac was strong enough to take a three-day walk. We do know he was strong enough to take some wood on his back. So 13, 16, 20, somewhere in that range is how it is. But, but think about this, as he's gotten older, I would contend that the love has grown greater. I know that my son is only three years old. David, did you guys see David today? He was running around his bare feet out here. It's like, what? Um, so we had our daughter try to take care of him and so whatever. But 
And you guys have seen his video blogs, of course. And he is a, he's a cute, cute little guy. And he's not old enough to take that journey, but listen, I love David greatly. And I know that many of you, as you've seen him rub against him, you love him as well. And your children as well. But, but, it, but as they grow, my, my love for my kids grow. My love for SR and love for Chris is greater now than it was when they were three because I know more about them. There's more about them to know and to love. And I believe that Abraham had this similar love for Isaac. And in fact, I would even argue that no son was loved as much as Isaac was loved. I think every time Abraham and Sarah looked at him, they were reminded of the miracle that God did for them. It's like a miracle baby. Maybe in that sense, like, like Thatcher, Ryan. It's a miracle baby. A preemie, born young. Or, or maybe a, a child who missed a near accident or something. That, that's just very loving. Every time they looked at her, every moment was precious to them. Especially they were old. They were, they were like grandparents with a child. The grandparents just longed for that time to have the grandchildren. And yet they had a, a grandchild, if you will, just right with them. They're their own child. And understanding the preciousness of life, there was great love for them. And then God asked him to offer him as a burnt offering. I mean, killing your son. See the blood split on his neck and then placing him upon the wood and burning him up till he's just ashes and then just leaving him there. I mean, can you imagine that? I think the only way to imagine is for you to try to think about sacrificing your own child. What that'd be like. And uh, I, I can't even think about that. When your heart begins to shudder, then stop thinking about those things. It's hard even to think about that. And yet, amazingly, look at Abraham's prompt obedience. Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. He split wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. I believe this is probably the first opportunity he had to obey. Um, he would have gone right away, but you can't take a three-day journey just going. You've got to prepare for that. You're going to go on a vacation. Weebies, I know you guys are going on vacation soon. You've got to prepare for it. So we think about, we're even thinking about now for our summer preparing for it. You've got to prepare for it. He was just told, but it was the very next day, very next early morning that he went. Now, we don't know what his night was like. He may have been sleepless, tossing and turning and thinking. He may have wrestled greatly with God in prayer. But from all outward appearances we can even guess that he was safe and secure in God, willing to obey everything that God told him to do. He left early in the morning when the preparations were done. He, Isaac, and two of his men, his servants or whoever they were, working for him, his employees. And we read on verse 4, on the third day, after three days of travel, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. This was Mount Moriah. This was a little mountain. This is, most scholars believe, Jerusalem, Mount Jerusalem. Jerusalem surrounded by hills that comes down and it comes up. It's right where the threshing floor of Arauna is. It's uh, right where the Temple Mount is. It's probably the same place, Mount Moriah. Three days of travel, then he finally saw this place. Can you imagine the, the conversations that took place on the road? Isaac, 15-year-old, on a trip alone with Dad. Can you imagine that? He's probably pretty excited. In fact... Uh, we, we were contemplating, talk, some of us fathers and sons talked about taking our annual trip to the Boundary Waters and said, SR, would you like to go? And uh, he said, yeah. 
when I asked him about this a couple months ago. And you know why he said, yeah. Because here it is, he gets to spend a couple days with Dad. He gets to spend a couple days with his friends. And he doesn't have to shower for five days. I mean, what, what more could you want? Of course he's going. And here's Isaac, got a chance to go with his dad on a trip for three days. Of course. Yeah, I, I, I just think that, I know SR, SR, when you get excited, you just start talking and talking and gibbering and jabbering about all. I, that's what I, I picture Isaac's like this, and, but Abraham is maybe quiet because he knows what's, what's going on. We don't know what he said. Maybe it's not the whole way. But we know one thing he said, verse 5. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I with the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. There's a statement of faith, is it not? He believes that Isaac will return with him. So you think, well, what was Isaac think? What was Abraham thinking at this point? Well, praise the Lord, we have divine insight into what he was thinking. Hebrews 11, verse 19, which is the last verse talking about Abraham today, says, For he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. In other words, Abraham was expecting to see Isaac dead upon the altar, maybe burned, and raised up again. That's faith in future grace, is it not? Faith in God's grace in the, in the future what Abraham really, really thought. And I, I do think that if you think hard about the text of Genesis, you can deduce this. I mean, Abraham was a man of faith. Genesis 15 spoke about that. He looked, so so your descendants be the stars of heaven in multitude. And he looked and he believed and God reckoned it to him as righteousness because he believed. Abraham knew that Isaac held the key to the promise with God. Genesis 21, verse 12, through Isaac your descendants shall be called. Abraham had seen God do a miracle to bring Isaac into being the first time, giving to Abraham and Sarah, who were beyond the proper time of life. Abraham knew that God's Word could be trusted. He'd seen it over and over again. He'd seen it particularly this birth of Isaac. And Abraham reasoned in his heart, God's Word is trustworthy. I've seen a miracle with my son the first time. I believe he was anticipating a second miracle to come. That's how he was reasoning. And I think you can reason that here in Genesis 20, he was expecting to bring him back, but he was obeying, so he was going to obey. Even though nobody had ever raised from the dead, even though there's no promise he'd raised from the dead, it was the only way for Abraham to do what God had told him to do, for God to keep his promise. So he put all things, these things together. Okay, now right here I need to go back to our freshman preceptorial class. When we read this account of Genesis, we also read the existentialist Soren Kierkegaard, who's a professing Christian existentialist. And uh, my class of freshmen, I, I, don't, I don't remember the teachers reasoning like I just reasoned with you, because they reasoned along the lines of Kierkegaard, who, when he explained this, by the way, as we read the Bible, we read Kierkegaard. Here's how Kierkegaard explains what happened here with Genesis account. He says, God's demand that Abraham sacrifice his only son was immoral and unethical. Ultimately, Abraham chose to accept the absurdity of this ultimate reality by making a leap of faith that is not based on any rational external criteria. And that was the pervasive mood of the day. God was asking Abraham to do something immoral and Abraham believed the irrational. And that's what the class of 200 freshmen were taught. Not surprising that they came to that conclusion. I mean, lots of the professors, vast majority of them, 
like 100% or 95% were non-Christians, for sure. And the majority of students were as well. So, of course, you're blinded to it. You say, well, God says that. That's obviously wrong. Abraham, obviously doing this, was crazy. And I remember sitting there as a freshman in class, not very well grounded. You kids, you, some of you kids in this class know the Bible better than I did when I was 18 years old, for sure. And um, I remember sitting there and didn't, didn't know uh, enough of the Scriptures to combat these people who were, who were talking about my faith on irrational terms. But there was something there. I said, no, I still believe and I still... I'm like Abraham. I mean, I, I, I identified there, but even I was called irrational in some, some regards. I couldn't, couldn't quite handle it. But I know that Abraham's faith here at this point is completely rational. God never asked Abraham to make this leap of faith. In fact, if you think about Hebrews 11:19 that I quoted for you earlier, right? For, for he considered that God is able to raise people from the dead. Considered from logizomai, which we get in logic, logistics. He reasoned in his mind and thought it through that God can raise people from the dead. Sure, I'll offer them up. It's a sacrifice. Abraham's actions were completely rational. Now, to the unbelieving mind, like those in Knox College, that argument seems crazy. But to the believing mind, it all seems well. Because why? We can trust God. That's what Abraham was, was thinking. Verse 6. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son. He took in his hand the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked together. Here we see the party splitting up. The young men stayed with the donkey, and uh, Abraham took the wood, stacked it on his son. He himself was carrying a knife and the fire, which is flint. Maybe we can try that, men, when we go to our Boundary Waters. Dirk, I don't think so. Huh? It doesn't work that way. And we kind of we got a flint. But that's, that's what they walked with. So Abraham, the old man, you know, and, and maybe even he walked a little slower and crouched over, but strong young Isaac had all this wood upon his back as they, as they went up. And, and Isaac began to think about this arrangement. He hadn't been privy to his conversations between Abraham and God, thankfully for him. Verse 7, Isaac spoke to Abraham and said, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And then Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Now, I wish at this point I knew what Abraham was thinking. Was he trying to calm Isaac down with this parabolic thought? Parabolic thought. Would he really think that he wouldn't have to go through the sacrifice? You know what? We don't know. Unfortunately, Hebrews doesn't tell us why he, he said this, but Abraham spoke better than he knew, right? In fact, he spoke better than he knew. Not only is that what happened, as we'll read about in verse 9, but also the ultimate lamb that God provides for us is Jesus Christ. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And there was the, the ultimate lamb that he certainly spoke of. And, and it does, even, even for us, speaks about the point of my message this morning, is that Abraham, as he's walking about here, he reasoned in the future, God can raise people from the dead. He also even said that God would provide the lamb. There would be something in the future to help this circumstance and this need. So he's trusting it. He's, and I think in some regard he's just saying, you know what, let's just wait till we get there. We'll see what happens. 
I just tell you, as I've been a pastor, as I've talked with people, as I've seen people through the years, I've been encouraged greatly by those who've gone through great trials in their lives and have found this future grace which they were hoping for. I mean, we, we can think about some kind of trial in someone's life and just say, wow, I don't, I don't think I could handle that. I don't think I could do it. But what is it? If there, I can't do it. But I can trust that were I put in that circumstance, by the grace of God, I'd receive the grace to be able to endure. And that's what Abraham is saying right here. He said, God is sufficient, Isaac, and God will provide the lamb for us. As it turns out, that's exactly how the story ends. God provides a lamb, but not until, catch this, Isaac is as good as dead. Verse 9. And when they came to the place in which God had told him and Abraham to build the altar there and arrange the wood and bound Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood, Abraham stretched out his hand, took his knife to slay his son, and the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham! And he said, here I am, it's the third time, right? Here I am, that's why they responded. Now, I love the pictures, the um, Renaissance drawings of this, uh, the paintings of this. I'm not sure if you guys know. I put some on the children's notes. Parents, you can kind of lean over and look at the children's notes. There are scores of these. I don't know how many of these are, but they're all over the Internet. You can just kind of look them up. You can see them. And it's always, it's always kind of the same, that, that Abraham has, has got Isaac somehow bound, tied together. So Isaac is weak. He can't do anything. There's various different ages. Sometimes he's a little infant. Sometimes a little older. Um, he's on the wood. He's right there. Abraham's ready to strike, you know, a little bit like a, like a quarterback going back to pass, and his arm is just coming forward, right? The pass is just starting, and then the angel stops him. And oftentimes in the pictures, you got some kind of angel even having a hand there calling, and Abraham's always, <gasps> you know, he's surprised because he expects to go forward, to bring his arm forward to, to kill Isaac. And he's stopped in, in all these pictures. It's a great... It's a great perspective because you get the feel here that the, the knife is starting to go forward. just that very last moment. And, and this is key here because you can um, even see that Isaac is as good as dead. And that's important. But the good news comes here in verse 12. Well, God does provide a lamb. He says, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing for him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son your only son from me. Abraham passed the test. He demonstrated his fear of God was greater than his love for his son. And that was the test. God provided the grace he needed, provided a ram in the thicket. And I, I do believe that in first, um, Hebrews 11, verse 19, he considered that God is able to raise people from the dead from which he also received them back as a type. Or, I like the ESV better, it says something like this, but figuratively speaking, he re- received them back from the dead. So what's that? Who's got the ESV? Someone can read that for me? I didn't write it down, but I like it the best. Who's got it? Michelle, you've got it back there? Verse 19, Hebrews 11. Maybe you guys don't. It says something like that. It's in a parable he received them back from the dead. We, just, we can leave it at that. It's, it's better there. That, that symbolically, what it is, it, Isaac was as good as dead. I mean, the, the dagger was, wasn't done totally, but it was done good enough. And that's how he, Isaac raised from the dead. Indeed, that's what he did. He raised from the dead. Abraham's trial gave him opportunity to trust, and then he had triumph. 
Look at verse 13. Abraham raised his eyes, look, there was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. It's a success. He triumphed in his trial. And the triumph continues on in verses 15 through 19. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. It's probably after the sacrifice is done, after the just ashes left. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will surely multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven, as the sand which is on the seashore. And the seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And Abraham returned to his young man and they rose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now you can see here even, even tones about God's love in Christ. This is your only son. This is the Son whom you love. Same thing that God did for us. God was willing to sacrifice His Son. God never calls us to do anything He Himself is not willing to do Himself. Well, I think of this, we get to the end of Abraham and we say, oh, how easy it is to get to the end of the trial and rejoice. But, but the writer of the Hebrews doesn't look so much at the end of the trial as he does the trial itself and what's Abraham looking to in that trial. Because Abraham, when going through the trial, didn't know the end. And that's the point really for us today. As we think about our, our trials, we need to trust in future grace that's coming, but it's not even maybe there yet. James 1.2 says this, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. I want you to look at that word, when. It's, it's when you encounter the trials that you rejoice. How easy is it afterwards? But he's saying, no, it's, it's, it's when, it's in the middle of your trials, you should count it as joy. Why? Because you know the end that it's going to produce. And I know that some of you are going through trials right now. I mean, um, financially, there are trials here in our congregation. There are job trials in our congregation. I know physically, some of you are hurting physically. Some trials going on there. No trials at home, marriage, kids. Trials at work, difficulties, conflicts there, overburdening. And my call for you this morning is to be like Abraham and have faith in God to provide His grace when you need it. Have faith that God will bring you exactly what you need when you need it. And that might be, by the way, different than your plan. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 speaks about how Paul had the thorn in the flesh. His plan was to get rid of the thorn. God's plan was to give enough grace to overcome the thorn. My grace is sufficient for you. Or think about Acts chapter 16 when uh, um, the apostles were on their way missionary journey. They wanted to go into Asia, but they are prohibited by the Holy Spirit from going into Asia. So they tried to go in Bithynia and the Spirit of Jesus stopped them from going to Bithynia. Then they heard the call of the man from Macedonia. And so they went to Macedonia. And their plan was different than the other plan that they, they might have had as they so they were going, and you might expect a, a great job. Right? A job like you used to have. And God's plan for you might be to have a, a lesser job. Or, or you might think that your plan is, is great health. Back to restore what you were like before. And, 
And what God says is, no, this is going to limit you the rest of your life. Or you might have a, a vision that says, well, my family's all restored. It says, well, no, there's still some hurt there in the family. God, God might restore things differently, but His grace will be sufficient for you. It's the message of Abraham. God will provide, so trust Him. Let's go on to my second point. First of all, we saw how Abraham was passing the test, looking to future grace to help him. And now we see Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So turn back to Hebrews chapter 11. If you turn back there. Read about Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Verse 20, 21, 22. Let me read it for you again, and then I'm going to ask you the question that came to my mind as I looked at this passage. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning their bones. Okay, so here's my question that I asked. I said, how is it that each of these men are showing faith in their actions? With Abraham, it's easy, right? God said, you go and sacrifice your son. Easy. Okay, I see how he's going to exert his faith by obeying God. But with these men, it's not really so clear. Here they come to the end of their lives and they're blessing their sons. By the way, it's a very common practice for the patriarchs to do this. I see this through Genesis a lot. Yvonne and I were looking, talking about this yesterday. You don't see it so much in the Scripture. Uh, big moment, people talk about having you bless your children. I think it's a great thing to do, but it's only modeled by the patriarchs in the Bible. But here they are, it's modeled by them, what they're doing. And I ask, how is it they show their faith in these things? I think the best I can figure is this, that they were looking to the future. They were even looking beyond their death for God to provide the grace needed not only for them, but, but for, his, for their ancestors, for their children and to their grandchildren. I might say it this way, they were passing the baton. And in passing the baton, they were showing their, their faith by how they passed their baton, particularly. You guys know how really worse race works, right? Kids especially, you've got the one runner with the race and he runs to the second runner and he gives the baton over and the second runner takes it, gives it the third and, and on. I want you to think though about the one, the first one running who has the baton and then gives it to the second person. He stops running and watches the second person run but I want you to think about his heart. The heart of the first runner, where is it? It's not like, whew, I'm all done. No, it's watching the baton to make sure that that fourth runner runs around because he's still emotionally engaged in the race. He wants to see that final runner. So though he may stop physically, his heart is still there. And so likewise, these men, as they gave their, their blessings, I think it showed that their heart is with their descendants even beyond just their life. It shows they had faith even for future generations. And so the patriarchs here handed off what they had. So what did the patriarchs have to hand off? Not a lot. Right? They were aliens and strangers in the land of promise. They dwelt in tents the whole time. They had only just a burial plot, a property they owned. They didn't have a lot, but they had the promises of God. And so with the promises of God, that's the same thing that they passed on to their children. In fact, I want to show you this. Let's go to Genesis. We're going to 
bounce around and see all these, these promises. The promise started to Abraham. I'm going to go through them kind of quick, so you need to, you need to follow along. Genesis 12, 1-3. through 3. Promise comes to Abraham. It's a good verse to put a big box around. Genesis 12, 1-3. through 3. Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's houses, to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the ones who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's the Abrahamic covenant. The promise to Abraham. Isaac received a similar promise. Go over to Genesis 26. And then we're going to summarize all these things. What was the promise to all of them? Genesis 26, verses 3-5. through 5. And again, this would be... a a good place to uh, put a box around because this is a key verse that comes. Promise to Isaac. Starting in verse 2, the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land that is Palestine and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants I will give these lands and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. Genesis 12. And I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and will give your descendants all these lands, and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Okay, we see some similar things there. Let's Jacob received a similar promise, Genesis 28. And again, if you're writing your Bibles, I encourage you, box around verses 13 to 15. So it just kind of stands out, because this is God's promise to Jacob too. The Lord stood above him, the land said, I am the Lord the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants also be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised to you. All these Promises are pretty much the same. They all contain three elements. There's a promise of the land. You come here. Promise of a multitude of descendants. A seed, you might, might talk about it. Just the, the spreading of the nation. And a promise there also of blessing. Land, seed, and blessing. You might say it that way. Or land, descendants, blessing. Or land and, and nation, blessing. And we see in previous weeks, the end of their life comes. It's all they had they didn't even really fully experience this because, yeah, they were in the land, but they're dwelling in tents. They weren't, had enough time, didn't have enough time to be great in number. They experienced a measure of blessing, but nothing like the blessing that was going to come. I mean, if, if you look on some of these statements of blessing, it says, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Not only to Abraham, but it also said that same thing to Isaac. It said, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And, um, why does it say it to Jacob? I'm, I'm not exactly sure. That's just speaking about the Gospel. Right? Is it, is it in Abraham, the seed of Abraham became Jesus. And through Jesus then, He became the blessing to all the nations of the world. Galatians 3 speaks about that. How the Gospel is preached beforehand to Abraham. So all the patriarchs had was promises. It's everything, but everything they had, they passed on the next generation as they trusted in future grace, right? Let's go back to Genesis 27. This is the story of Isaac blessing Jacob and Esau. Now, it's an interesting story. We don't have time for it today. Right, but you remember how Jacob came in and stole the blessing from Esau. 
Um, but I want you to notice though, how the chapter begins. Chapter 27. It came about when Isaac was old and his eyes were too dim to see that he called his older son Esau and said, My son. He said, Here I am. Again, common. Isaac then said, Behold, now I'm old and do not know the day of my death. Now then, please take your gear, your quiver, your bow and go out in the field and hunt game for me and prepare a savory dish for me such as I love and bring it to me that I may eat so that my soul may bless you before I die. Here was... Isaac, with a vision, before he dies, he wants to give Esau a blessing. And the, the providence of God, it's Jacob, the scoundrel, who would get the blessing. The younger will serve the older. Notice what the blessing says in verse 27. Jacob deceives him you know, by, by putting on um, Esau's garments. Apparently, they had their own distinctive smell, however that was. Uh, skins of young goats in the hands and neck. Stole the blessing. And here's, here's what Isaac said then. See, the smell of my son, 27, 27, is like the smell of the field which the Lord has blessed. Now, may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and new wine. May peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you and blessed be those who blessed you. Some of the same elements, multitudes of people, a blessing coming there. But notice, I want you to see how it's focused on the future. I'm done, but may God bless you, my son. And then verses 39 to 40, it's a blessing to Esau. It's really more of a a curse. Um, We can skip over that. But the point of Hebrews really governs us that here it is, Isaac, by the end of time, he blesses regarding future grace. Let's look at Jacob. Jacob also gave blessings too. Genesis 48. We go there. We see Jacob blessing the sons of Joseph in chapter 48. Again, a very interesting story. Ephraim and Manasseh, these were the sons of Joseph born in Egypt. These were apparently with an Egyptian wife somehow. Uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, they, they stand before Jacob with a Manasseh on his right and Ephraim on his left. And he was supposed to put his hands just like this to bless them. But this is the ways of God. Jacob goes like this. And then blesses Ephraim as the firstborn and Manasseh as the secondborn. He crosses his hands. And you can read that there like in verse 13. It, it describes that. Joseph wasn't really happy about that. But Jacob said, this is the way it is. Because Ephraim's going to be great. And then he blessed Joseph meaning he blessed both of his sons, saying this, The God before whom my fathers, Abraham Isaac, walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, and may my name live on in them and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And there again you see the same blessings upon them, multitudes of people, um, even, even there about uh, um, just, just blessing them. My name living on among them. I mean, the nation Israel. Jacob's name was Israel. And indeed that happened. Even right here, he's, he's giving his grace, trusting in future grace for the nation of Israel to be there. Again, just future oriented, I think, in the day they die. And then, the writer of Hebrews didn't mention this, but all of Genesis 49 is all blessings to all the twelve sons of Jacob. Again, just a, a faith in the future of what God is going to be faithful to continue to do. And then Joseph, he doesn't bless his children. 
But he does also mention something in the future. Look at verse 24 of chapter 50. We get to Joseph. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which He has promised an oath to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And then Joseph made his sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you and you shall carry my bones up from here. Now we don't see the the blessing here of the children, but we do see the faith of Joseph, right? He knew the covenant that came to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob about the land. He knew that God would give this land to the descendants and that's where he wanted to be buried. His, his heart was, was there with the land because even though he'd been sold to slavery, lived in Egypt most of his life, that's where he wanted to be. He wanted to bury his bones there because that's where his hope was. His hope was in God, future fulfilling His promise. His faithfulness, future prosperity of Israel in the land. They were passing the baton. And I just have you men, even women, really think about how is it you're going to pass the baton to your next generation as well. And when it comes the day that you die, or even preparing for your death, or as you get older, will you be such that you give leadership to your kids in such a way that demonstrates you have a heart for not only your kids, but your grandkids and your great-grandkids. God says, He promises, He gives His loving kindness to a thousand generations of those who love Him and keep Him, His commandments. And just even pray over them at some point. Trusting for the future. Uh, parents, maybe for us is more applicable for us kids who potentially be married. Are you praying for your children's spouses? Just seeking God's blessing upon their life. Are you, are you seeking what you're doing to to help that God would help even the future grace of other people, of your kids. I think that's a way to, to show faith. And if you don't do those things, probably maybe shows a lack of faith. But I would pray that God would help us in these ways to pass the tests that come our way, to pass the baton of blessing as we look towards the future and trust Him for His future grace. So what, what I want to do now is even end our, our message, end our sermon this morning by, by singing that great hymn of the faith, Trust and Obey. In the senior hymnals, you can take those out. Hymn number 571. Just that is uh, it's what Abraham did. It's what all who do by, by faith do. We trust and obey. It's another way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Uh, one of the things I really appreciate about Piper's book and his future grace is that he shows that, that trusting God and obeying God it's going to be the best thing for you. It's far better to trust Him than to be anxious about life today. It's far better to trust Him than it is to sin. It's going to be for your greatest happiness. As this is, there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey.